A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, Deconstructed listeners. I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept. And I'm Senior Politics Editor Brianna Joy Gray. This week, we're bringing you a special dispatch from The Intercept's Washington offices. Mehdi will be back with a regular episode of the show on Thursday, but today we have an extended interview with Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We'll also be joined by former Congressman Brad Miller, who previously served on the House Financial Services Committee, which we now know AOC will be joining. We talk with her about her first few weeks on the Hill, her thoughts on 2020, and reflect on her out-of-nowhere congressional campaign. Enjoy. So Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, it's so great to have you here. We know that your time is in um, high demand, <laughs> and you've already had such a busy week. I saw you on Monday uh, having that discussion with uh, Tanisi Coates at Riverside Church in commemoration of Dr. King. That night, you jetted off and you went on the the late night show with Colbert, <laughs> yeah. where I hear you cursed out the entire country. Oh yeah, apparently. <laughs> uh, on a scale of zero to some, how many <laughs> do you give? <laughs> I think it's um, zero. <laughs> and this morning I saw on Instagram stories that you had a Democratic caucus meeting uh, and you were explaining to your followers exactly what it meant and the way that you, you do in, one of, in what is one of the only remaining civics classes, I think, that's yeah. left <laughs> in the country. And movement-based campaigns are very powerful because they're issue-focused. They're, anyone can run an issue-based campaign. What the heck is going on with this? I'm going to whisk this coconut milk. So I just want to start by asking you, like, how are you feeling right now? I'm feeling good. You know, I, it's it's funny. Most days I have no <laughs> idea what day it is. And people are like, have a good weekend. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so would it, would it be fair to say that uh, some of the cooking that happens on Instagram Live is a is a necessity because you just have to multitask? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It definitely is. It's it's a, it's a total necessity, and I figured it, it's also a good way to use technology to reach constituents because sometimes uh, it's just physically almost impossible with demands in our time. So we have to figure out ways to kind of use the, the small pockets of time that we do have creatively, even if it's just when I'm, you know, prepping vegetables for dinner, if I can get, uh, if I can get a conversation about policy in there, it's, it's tremendously effective. It's, that might be like a 200 level or 300 level <laughs> social media course. Yeah. So how did, how did the course go that you taught, you know, you taught a kind of Twitter for dummies class. No, I mean, I wouldn't your... say dummies. <laughs> Twitter for members of Congress, which is kind of synonymous. Ocasio-Cortez will be leading a session on the Hill to help school her fellow Democrats on social media skills. She offered fellow Democrats nuggets like, if you don't know what a meme is, don't post a meme. Uh, how'd that go? Like, it went really well. I mean, it. this one was more of a rapid fire. So this session was really a panel. And uh, it was myself, it was Ted Lieu, who himself has a very large Twitter following, uh, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, as well as some of the Twitter government kind of outreach folks at, at Twitter itself. And actually, House Ethics was there because there are House Ethics rules based on what you can tweet, when you can tweet mm -hmm. it. 
And so they kind of covered the ethics side. And I kind of covered just my approach and how we can better get, I think, a, a party message to really resonate with people. And Twitter has come a long way on the Hill. When, when, it, when it first came around, I remember seeing a sign in Longworth for the cafeteria that said, to call to follow the Longworth cafeteria, call this extension. Whoa. <laughs> call them up. Then you, they'll tell you what the handle is. <laughs> then you can go. Oh, my gosh. I did not follow Longworth cafeteria. Now, I'm curious, as you went from kind of an obscure candidate to then much less obscure candidate, but still not global celebrity, mm-hmm. then go to Democratic nominee, then go to Democratic congresswoman, each moment you kind of ratchet up in, in the amount of public attention that you're getting. Did you ever notice yourself kind of self-censoring a little bit or thinking an extra beat? And and how did you deal with that? Or or did you not? Yeah. I mean, if you didn't, it's almost kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I actually, for me, the most stressful time was right after the primary, because that I think was the biggest, starkest mm-hmm. difference in my life. Like literally overnight, I went from no one caring who I was unless I was swiping my Metro card too slow <laughs> to like, to like, Everyone being like, who is she? What is this? All these cameras all over the place. And it was just a completely alien change. Um, I was extremely stressed out because it felt like everything I said had so much more weight overnight. A couple of days after the primary, I was in my neighborhood and I turned around this corner to get on the street and this woman saw me and just started crying. Like she just broke down crying. And even though I didn't feel like a different person, I felt this immense responsibility of all of these people's hopes and dreams for our future it is something that I grapple with a lot because I know it's not me it's like this avatar of me I but I still feel a responsibility to do the best that I can if I can make an observation about you having watched your Twitter come up uh, over the (laughs) past uh, a few months or six months or whatever it's been I've given this some thought myself I'm you know, obviously not Ocasio-Cortez, but I went from relative, you know, like a nobody lawyer to working for The Intercept. And I remember feeling suddenly, you know, I can't tweet about my digestive tract today <laughs> you know, in the way I might have before. Um, and suddenly feeling like, oh, maybe this is going to have a stymieing effect, a silencing mm. effect on what I actually say. And then having to think about, well, the reason why anybody actually cared in, to, in the first place is because there was a, a kind of a zeitgeist that I felt like I was tapping into. And mm. you said this in your remarks with Tanisi Coates the other day, mm-hmm. that you felt as much as you were, um, you know, talking or tweeting, you were also listening and that you felt like you were um, one of many voices and that you just had a platform to to amplify those voices more. So yeah, yeah, I think that's also that's probably one thing that I that I did not share in this Twitter 101, because maybe that's more of a 201 (laughs) in that it's not just an outlet. It's also an inlet in that it is a place where you can where you take temperature, where you take pulse. And it's not just how to tweet, but it's also how to listen and how to read. And uh, and that really tells you where people are at, where the zeitgeist is, so that you can kind of uh, be speaking in a way that is not going against the tide of 
of the language and the mood and the sentiment of where people are. What are can you think of any examples of where your kind of antenna was tuned to like the a public reaction to a particular thing? Did you like notice like, oh, wow, Green New Deal is like really popping now. Like people are really hungry for this or... I think, well, I any, actually... Any of the reverse or... Yeah, I, th- I actually feel like um, I do... It started off unintentionally, but I feel like I end up listening to things in that I'll tweet something and something that gets particularly extra traction, I I kind of dissect, especially if I if I didn't expect it to mm. build traction. And I'm like, hmm. And it was a similar thing actually with the Green New Deal is that we were floating this as a policy discussion before even the general election. And what we found was that we were we were interviewing policy experts and academics and activists and advocates about this and we weren't even sure if we wanted to call it a green new deal um we weren't i wasn't a thousand percent sure on that kind of branding if you will or or how we would talk about that and what we found was that um it was kind of a working title green new deal was a working title and we almost had the understanding that it was going to be called something else but it kept like leaking and catching and people just started writing articles calling it a green new deal before we even said anything or or (laughs) called it that ourselves and so because of that it was that was in a moment where i was listening and it was like okay let's not try to force our own thing on this if this is building traction if it's uh easily being communicated and let's just run with it and one thing I noticed after the election in that kind of fraught moment where you were kind of proving yourself to the, the country, you really leaned into it. Like you, mm-hmm. you, you basically took all comers um, and then, you know, and, and you were hitting on all of the strides. And then you did the one, I forget what the exact quote was. It was some misstep about Israel. Oh, yeah, the firing line, which then got doctored. And then the doctored yeah. video is the one that made it on Fox News. Right. I think it, what I meant is like the, the settlements, places where, um, where Palestinians are experiencing uh, difficulty. Do you think you can expand on that? I am not the expert on geopolitics on this issue. And then, like, everyone just sees the doctored version instead of the actual exchange, which is, you know... It did feel like you stepped back a little bit. And yeah. maybe there was already a scheduled recalibration, but it did feel like after that you are like, okay, we, think, we pushed it as far as we could, yeah. now it's time to... I do think that there were a couple of things happening in that moment. One is that everyone in the world thought that my general election was a sure thing except me. I did not think mm. that my win in the general was a sure thing. I didn't either. Yeah, I we was, talked about it. it yeah, two, no. It might have been two people. I, I, or, I yeah. did not. And like everyone around me was like, you're crazy. Like it's going to be a landslide. And I was like, no, it's not. And we were getting a lot of evidence on the ground mm. that supported my feelings on that. And so I really did not want to reach over what I thought I could. And, um, and actually... Before that interview even happened, I had already agreed that that was going to be my last one. Mm. And it just ended up ending on a bad note. (laughs) Um, But Did not stick the landing. Did not (laughs) stick the landing at all. We recently learned that Ocasio-Cortez had been assigned to the powerful House Financial Services Committee, along with progressive freshman Katie Porter, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib, as well as new member Tulsi Gabbard. 
It's pretty unusual for that many progressive freshmen to get such prestigious committee assignments. We sat down with former North Carolina Representative Brad Miller, who served on the Financial Services Committee during the 2008 financial crisis, and saw firsthand how that committee had been captured by the industry it oversees. Brad, thanks thanks for joining us. Brad Miller is a congressman represent represented Raleigh and North Carolina. Was on the Financial Services Committee, one of the kind of the leading progressives became one of the leading progressives on the committee, com- pushing for uh, Glass Steagall to be reinstated, for the for the banks to be broken up, for bankers to be thrown in prison, uh, for <laughs> with with a fair trial, fair trial first. <laughs> first, first we give a fair trial, uh, then subprime we lending to be regulated, what? subprime lending to be yes. regulated. Uh, he lead lead sponsor of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau over in the House. But before we go to Brad, I wanted to get your insight on banking issues because of your own experience mm. with banking. Now that after you won the nomination, you, your mansion in Yorktown was <laughs> yeah. uncovered. <laughs> my my two-bedroom mansion. <laughs> and that and that had actually been part of our coverage of the race and mm-hmm. had been part, right, of, part right. of your story uh, the entire time. Uh, but it did involve foreclosure. It involved, uh, was it called the probate court or the the, yeah, the surrogate's court? The surrogate's court. Um, so what what was your experience with the banks and, and with foreclosure? Well, I feel like for me, I was largely shielded from direct interactions with the bank because at that time when my father passed, I was just around 18 years old. And this was, you know, we were confronting the double whammy, as, as you already reported on, of of us struggling with our payments in the middle of a financial crisis, but also losing um, my father, who was the main breadwinner in our home. I remember being at the house and there would be these cars that started pulling up and taking pictures of our house. They were just anticipating something happening. And so, uh, it, and my mom would walk up to them and be like, what are you doing? And they basically say, well, we're taking photos from the street. You can't really tell us what to do. And it was just very deeply unsettling, very deeply unsettling. And it, that's when it, that's when these predatory practices that we knew banks engaged in leapt off the page, leapt off the television, and it was literally on the street in front of my house. And it's not just what banks right do, it's often what they don't do, mm-hmm. um, which follow the law when it comes to modifications or refinancing or or, or just work, work with people. So you're now going to be in a position to regulate those banks. Mm-hmm. You know, banks were unwilling to work with you a couple years ago. Now they're going to have to work with mm-hmm. you. Um, you know, what's Brad, what's she facing from the banks on the House <laughs> Financial Services Committee? Uh, you're facing a, a lot of members who will be more senior than you who don't have those sympathies. Mm-hmm. I have not, certainly not experienced it themselves. Most members of the committee are not going to be all that immersed in, uh, in the details. Certainly in the time that I was there, towards the end, after the financial crisis hit, after we were in the foreclosure crisis, it became apparent that servicing of mortgages was a huge problem. Mm. And uh, we just couldn't get, those of us who were trying to do something about it just could not get them to do anything. And there were times that I just wanted to take, you know, somebody from Fannie or Freddie who said, we can't do it anyway except the way we're doing it and just throw them out the window. Fortunately, it was was on the first floor, as I recall. So we wouldn't have done that. (laughs) Right. The issues are complex and, and they there, was the this, complex. there was all this pain yeah. out there in America right. over foreclosures and the unspoken unacknowledged priority was always about helping the banks kind of jiggle their finances right. so they could appear to be solvent 
and they wouldn't have to recognize losses on mortgages. I mean, it was a shameful time mm-hmm. in our history. And I think household wealth, people's life savings, families' life savings, fell by $9 trillion. And it was just not the priority of anybody in Washington. And that, and that was never acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they always wrung their hands and said, oh, yes, gosh, we are doing so much. This is so bad. We're doing everything we can. But everything they could have done that would have been effective would have made the banks recognize their losses. And, mm-hmm. that, and the banks would have been revealed, to many of them, to be insolvent. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a great frustration of, of my life. So I have a question. Sure. Because you were serving in Congress and on the committee in the years leading up to the crisis. And I know that I I remember very well when the crisis was unfolding, because this was around the time that my father had passed away. And there were so many momentous things that were happening. Barack Obama was elected that, um, you know, that November. But earlier that year was when Lehman collapsed. And so... Lehman collapsed almost. That was really what precipitated the the real crisis. Mm -hmm. And so there there were all of these things unfolding. But I remember it was really in that it was really that fall when everything was was starting to fall apart. And there was just this universal sense of what is going on. Like we know that we know that the markets are crashing. We don't know why. We don't know what's going on. And then it wasn't until later that we, you know, that conversations about derivatives and credit swaps and all of these things were going on. But uh, in that moment, there was so much bewilderment. And I'm curious for you serving in the time that you did, how, what was it like? Remembers passing things and like, we just didn't know what was getting passed? Nobody, nobody knew. I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that I think you need to think about is trying to make sure you get a variety of sources of information uh, because the committee was being spoon-fed by the industry. The industry said all these financial innovations are just great. They're making home ownership available. They're, you know, the derivatives are allowing people to manage risk. and it's making it was things all, more secure. All, all good. It was all good. It was, the, it was just the wonders of, an unfettered, of unfettered capitalism. And we were completely unprepared. It took years. I mean, I try to piece together what really did happen, and I don't think we've done it. I know that we had the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, but people's sense, their sense is that in Washington, the real decisions are made behind closed doors, yep. and they aren't made in their interest. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're not wrong about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why Democrats need to look at ourselves and say, how could we have lost to this guy? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I mean, we can talk about how bad Trump is all we want, but we lost to that Exactly. You know, the Clinton campaign ran as the, everybody who's anybody was for her. The word coronation's been thrown around. Not my word, I'm just saying. (laughs) Coronation, the field was cleared for her, and they seemed never to understand that it was a change election, that that the electorate was fit to be tied, was angry. And and, uh, Bernie... Bernie was thought to be, the, you know, this year's or that year's Dennis Kucinich. Mm-hmm. I say this with no disrespect to, to Dennis, <laughs> uh, but Dennis never got more than about 5%. And Bernie was thought to be a message candidate, I think even by Bernie. Mm-hmm. And he got 47% of pledged delegates. He won 20-some primaries, 20-some states. And the Clinton campaign and the Democratic establishment never really figured out Why? things have come unstuck. 
things have come unstuck. And they talked about how the math didn't work and Bernie couldn't possibly win the nomination. And I think that Bernie's supporters already thought that Clinton and the Clinton campaign were the Borg. And that just sounded like uh, resistance is futile. Mm. Uh, so they never quite caught on. And I'm not sure they've caught on yet. I think w- one thing a lot of people might not know about the committee structure is that there's a literal price tag uh, for joining these, yeah. these committees. You know, the more powerful... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A committee is, and the more powerful an industry it regulates, the more money you're expected to be able to raise, and right. therefore, you have to ante up. And right. this is not kind of a theoretical thing. There's they put a they put a price right. on this stuff, um, and they call it dues. Right. And you 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 turn this money over to the the DCCC. Yeah, I remember um, in kind of expressing interest in in which committees I wanted first. Very early after I won my primary, uh, there was a lot of outreach from incumbent from incumbent Democrats. And the one question that everyone kept asking was, what committee do you want to be on? What committee do you want to be on? And I literally had just gotten elected. And I'm like, I don't know. What committees are there? You know, there's <laughs> there's uh, and, and they do change in name from yeah. one administration, one majority to another. And everyone was was so uh, immediate in that one question not how are you doing how are you coping right. hey you came out of nowhere how, you know it was what committee do you want to be on and I remember thinking wow like, why is this the question and I spent one day in DC and I met with some folks and um, and it wasn't until like the very end of the day that that I was told well you know if you want a good committee you, you got to raise funds Mm. And um, and, I, and I remember saying, well, and I was like, because at that time I had raised funds for other progressive candidates. I had driven folks to their donation links and things like that. And so by that time we had raised over, you know, I think 50 or $100,000 for other, other progressive non-corporate funded campaigns. And I was like, oh, but I, I am raising funds. And they're like, oh, no, 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 to, to you know, the, the, the D-trip. And I was like, oh, um, but I had just gone through this year with, where, at the time, the D-Trip had gone against other progressive mm-hmm. candidates. And I was like, okay, well, I remember leaving that. And I'm like, well, I'm going to get put on some terrible committee. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, election time comes. And there, we're just getting our committee assignments this week. So it's January you know, of, of the new term. But we've basically spent the last three months since election day lobbying. And it's this very opaque process. No one gives you a sheet of paper and says, like, this is how 
you get on a committee. And so a lot of freshmen are just kind of babes in the woods, like, how do I do this? And you just talk to a lot of people. Um, but one of the interesting developments on financial services is is uh, it's because we were asking to be put on an exclusive committee and financial services is an exclusive committee. And for a freshman, that's a very, that does not normally happen. And, uh, and then we started feeling like, we're feeling much more reception to this request than we had anticipated. We're like, hmm, what's going on? And I had sat down with, with um, Chairman Waters. I had spoken with a lot of other members and it seems like we're in this very interesting moment where after the financial crisis, all these activists and advocates really started zeroing in on the Financial Services Committee. And because its members were getting so much more scrutiny than they had in the past, it no longer became the same kind of fundraising committee because those members were getting targeted a lot. And so as a result, a lot of these even incumbent members that were on it have left the committee to go to other money committees. Hmm. Um, and so it's opened up this huge window. And so this year, the Financial Services Committee has actually been staffed with a lot of progressives on it um, yeah. to, to kind of occupy that space. And in fact, frontline members are, it's seen as too difficult of an assignment, like on judiciary, you'll have too many tough votes. Yeah, I, I think it's changed dramatically from when I was appointed to the committee, and I was appointed as a first-term member, uh, and then what it became. I mean, it <laughs> seems kind of odd to remember this, but uh, when I was elected, I wanted to avoid the committees that seemed to have a lot of litmus test, party line, mm -hmm. hot issues, because I perceived myself as a moderate. And um, so I avoided judiciary because it's mm -hmm. all just... And same thing was true of education in the workforce, or education and labor, the Republicans call it, when they're in, in, in control. Um, and financial services was thought to be kind of a backwater, um, <laughs> and, but not, certainly not where the fault line in American politics would be, and a lot of technical issues. Um, and the, the issue I picked, I was the old advice for new members of Congress is pick some obscure technical issue, but mm -hmm. become the expert on that. And you know your picture will be on a milk carton, but you'll be doing important work. So the, the obscure technical issue I picked was subprime mortgages. Wow. <laughs> wow. And it shows how Congress, you know, responds to incentives. Like the yeah. mm -hmm. shame works, you know, yeah. political organizing works. Yeah. I think you did a, a tweet thread about this and you have a picture of uh, somebody sitting with a Monopoly man, a guy dressed as yeah. the Monopoly man behind them, applying that kind of psychic pressure. But, but then from that, um, the committee became more and more dominated by first-term members and presumed to be competitive districts mm -hmm. so they could raise money. Mm -hmm. uh, and then all they did uh, in Washington was was make phone calls. Yeah. So if you were a bank lobbyist or a Wall Street lobbyist, all you had to do to, to have the ear of, an, of a member of the Financial Services Committee was wait for the phone to ring. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have to wait very long. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it became a really tough committee for any progressive points of view. Brad Miller, former congressman from North Carolina and member of the House Financial Services Committee, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here.
So in our last few minutes, I just got to talk 2020 with you. Okay. Um, some people hate the horse race. I unabashedly love it. <laughs> We've had a lot of exciting high-profile announcements this week. Mm-hmm. Kamala Harris was in there. Obviously, Elizabeth Warren has been uh, in the race for a while now. Um, Kristen Gillibrand. I mean, we have three of the top leaders now, all women. Mm-hmm. This has generated a lot of excitement, yeah. depending on how much credibility you put in certain DNA tests. Several of those women <laughs> oh, are women yes. of color. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so the question becomes... You know, how, what are we looking for? What are our kind of um, priorities uh, in this race? You know, I have been, you know, noticing a lot of excitement around the idea of um, kind of uh, uh, um, glass ceiling breaking candidates or, or candidates who will be first for reasons that are understandable. Um, but there is... Pete Buttigieg on the cover of the Washington Post magazine, <laughs> first millennial president. First, first millennial who? president, first... Gay pre- president, yeah, you know, exactly. there's a lot of firsts. Exactly, he's yeah. the mayor well. of South Bend. <laughs> oh, which sorry. is Alex. I did not here. mean that. <laughs> no, no, but it's 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 warranted. I don't know if I don't know, so he could be great. He could be great. He, he could, could be, be great. great. But the question becomes: in that profile, there was nary a mention of any policy. So mm. the question becomes: there, there seems to be this division between candidates where um, identity is being emphasized and candidates where policy is being emphasized. And I think that what a lot of people are really attracted to about you is that you're a candidate or a, a representative now who is able to merge the two in a way that f- fulfills a lot of people's interests. So I'm curious to you uh, about you. There's been a lot of talk of litmus tests. Mm-hmm. People put a lot of different things in their litmus tests. What are you looking for in an emerging 2020 candidate? What are your priorities? So I think that um, oftentimes policy and progressivism gets pitted against identity in a lot of different ways and uh and it is it just like makes a mess i think mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> and for me i think it's important on one side for the progressive side to not ignore the power of identity because i know when i was running my race in the very beginning i was running with a very strong progressive base and a very strong progressive coalition but that alone was not enough to take me over the top mm-hmm. and it was when i really leaned in on this broader message and crafted a progressive message that was rooted in my life story that we were able to really capture a much wider electorate even though my progressive message was still the same. And so I think it's important that we don't ignore the power of identity because it is very powerful, especially for women, especially for the rage of women right now. It is, uh, you know, Rebecca Traister has written about this. It's Mm -hmm. like, women's rage is a very potent political force and it changes things on the right and the left you know it was primarily these women back in the 1940s 50s and 60s it was primarily these white women who were supporting the the Ku Klux Klan that got all of these statues erected in the south that are being taken down today that people think were erected around the time of the civil war and so it's it's a very potent political force on both sides of the aisle and um and so I think it's something that we shouldn't ignore. I'm, I think it's great that we have multiple female presidential candidates. So there's not the woman running. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, my God, you know. So I'm very excited about there being multiple women across a, a, a 
that can represent different parts of the political spectrum mm-hmm. on the left. So that's something that I'm that I'm thankful for because it means that we don't get boxed in as one belief. And so I think that's really good. Um, I am a horse race hater. <laughs> I hate them. I'm like, can like don't ask me until the day before the New York primary. It's like how I feel. Um, but I do think that obviously from from maybe not obviously, but I think it's pretty obvious. Like what we're trying to do is is frame the debate and the conversation that we're going to be happening in the next that's going that we're going to be having in the next two years, regardless of what that candidate is. So, I do not think that for the future of humanity and for our country to continue to prosper, that we cannot have another presidential cycle where climate change is not being asked about at almost every debate. And that includes the role of fossil fuel, fossil fuel industries, and that includes the role of um, of, a, of a broad spectrum of issues. So one thing that was really interesting uh, in your in the in the whole course of the remarks of the Martin Luther King Day event on Monday, um, was that this is an event that is honoring Martin Luther King, a civil rights hero. It's predominantly, um, you know, overwhelmingly African-American audience and speakers and, you know, movement leaders who were there. Mm-hmm. And my impression of the event was that the politics being espoused were much more to the left of what we normally hear out of mainstream Democrats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is in direct contrast with the message we constantly hear about how, what certain communities, what the black community really wants. Yeah. And the idea that progressivism and people of color are in two different buckets and need to be catered to in these two very different ways. Yeah, which I, I find funny because the polling and all of the data and everything that we feel and see shows that the opposite is true, is that communities of color are usually much further to the left than white liberals because racism, colonialism, are we understand through lived experience in a way that many don't understand that these are issues that are part of a capital a hypercapitalist framework, you know. Black folks are descendants of slaves that were imported, quote unquote, by slave owners to the United States for the explicit purpose of cultivating crops. And it was predicated on on white supremacy and racial superiority, but we have to understand that white supremacy exists for a reason, and they exist for very specific cultural and economic reasons. And LBJ talked about this, like if you can convince a poor white man that he's superior to a black man, he'll empty his pockets for you. And so it's not just economic reasons why racism exists, but there are economic reasons why racism is perpetuated and incentivized, um, whether that's housing, income, etc. And like I said on Monday uh, with Tanahasi, until America tells the truth about itself, we're never going to heal. And this it's like this thing that as a culture we hide, we make excuses for, we do the economic anxiety thing when Trump wins. And it's like we it's it's like this big wound with a big ugly scab on it and it's just going to stay this itchy thing that we keep going back to until we just deal with it. And so so what is I think the the part 
that is interesting to me is certain people have appropriated the idea that we have to acknowledge and deal with a problem, which I think is right, as a kind of a be-all, end-all. It is clear now racism is real in this country, and we need to deal with that. And I think that some of one of my political concerns is that there is this, this kind of space in the Democratic Party that says, you know, if I stand on a stage and I say the word intersectionality, if mm-hmm. I stand on the sa- stage and say, you know, we have to address these issues and, and racism is real, then everybody applauds and there's not necessarily kind of the policy follow-up that's necessary to start mm-hmm. to address those root causes. And so I think I do think that that's what makes your message particularly powerful, that you're someone who's able to, bl- to blend those interests together. And I'm curious to see what's going to happen in 2020 if we get people who are really good at kind of saying the thing mm-hmm. um, that o- mm-hmm. over the course of the last five years or so, people have kind of gotten that you need to say. And those who can actually connect that to, okay, I'm not going to say... We need to address redress past harms mm-hmm. and then say, but I don't care that the most you know uninsured population in the country is mm-hmm. you know Hispanic and we're and, you know we're not going to yeah, deal with Medicare for and all. Brianna and Brianna and I were talking about this the other day. Yeah, it'd be like the, the cheering at just the mention of racism would be like if if a politician went up and said unemployment's at fifteen percent. And the crowd cheered. Yeah, applause like they like wait for like, applause lines right, for this. Like, you know? Right. No, 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 no. That's yeah, not a good thing. Like, Don't I, what I, Economic misery is what real. What I imagine yeah. is like when they're like, and we need to, and like when you know they say discrimination or unfair incarceration of black men, and then they pause and the crowd cheers, and it's like in their mind they're like, you're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. Right. Yeah. Like, Why for are you acknowledging cheering? it, no. <laughs> and it's yeah. like okay, That's, you know, acknowledging racism is a really big step. Yeah, it's a necessary first step. It's it's a really big step from where we were, but you're right, it's nowhere near enough and the solutions are so painful, frankly. I find it I find the solutions for white communities to be very painful because it's very painful for a community to understand and have go through this like you can be the idea that you can be poor and benefit from the color of your skin does not compute for a lot of people and going through that realization is very painful or even just economically for people that are that were born with silver spoons it's very painful to admit that you had advantages and it's just uh, look what happened to Brett Kavanaugh when he was confronted. With oh that. my God! Exa- <laughs> he melted no, down it, in front of the whole country. It yeah. literally is an identity meltdown. Yeah. It's a fundamental. I worked for everything I ever had. Yeah, <laughs> and like that is the majority of of a lot of communities. How a lot of communities feel, and it's because if you haven't had a transition in your life where you know you were maybe born poor or born without, you know, certain privileges. And then especially as you transition into having certain privileges in your life, you actually see and feel and sense and taste and smell all of the differences. If you've never experienced different treatment in your life, you wouldn't know what different treatment feels like or looks like. And we can all, almost every single person in this country can acknowledge some privilege of some of some type. You right. know, I'm a cisgendered woman. I will never know the trauma of 
feeling like I'm not born in the right body. Mm-hmm. And that that is a privilege that I have mm-hmm. no matter how poor my family was when I was born. Um, but it's really hard for some people to admit. It, it's part of this weird American dream mythology that we have that for a lot of, in a lot of circumstances, isn't as true or isn't as clearly communicated as we'd like for it to be or yeah. we wish it was. Yeah, I'm working on it. Maybe maybe next piece on privilege, privilege dialogues and how to make it more constructive. Look um, forward to that one. <laughs> and my mentions don't. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard. I don't envy you. Well, well thank you so much for coming and spending the time with us and getting into all of these subjects. Um, we hope to have similar conversations with you in the future. Yeah, totally. This is great. Thank you. Great to see you. That was freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and former North Carolina Congressman Brad Miller. I'm Brianna Joy Gray, and my co-host was Ryan Grimm. You can follow us on Twitter at BriBriJoy and at Ryan Grimm. We hope to be doing more interviews from Washington like the one you just heard over the coming weeks and months with key figures in the Democratic insurgency that is reshaping both the party and our national politics. The Intercept is supported by its listeners and readers, so if you like what we're doing, please help us continue doing it by becoming a member at theintercept.com slash give. This podcast is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Lee Tal-Malad is our executive producer. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. Did you enjoy this conversation? Hate it? Let us know at podcasts at theintercept.com. We'd love to do more conversations like this, so please do tell us what you thought of it. See you again soon. Hopefully. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.